If you have a Bible and you want to look, or if you just have the pamphlet, it's the, we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel 9. Again, continuing the, the life of David. I love that, that y'all are studying the life of David. I think that's, uh, he has such an amazing story, and there's so much there that, you know, sometimes the, if you grew up in church, the little children's cartoons you watch can miss a lot of the really cool stories. And there's a lot there. So I'm glad y'all are studying it. And just as a reminder, this is the Old Testament. And God's people in the Old Testament were called to be a blessing to the nations. And the king was supposed to be the representative of God's people. And because he was the representative, he did a couple of things. But one of them at least was he was supposed to be a model citizen. So he was supposed to show exactly what obedience to the law is like for everyone. And, and when you see David at his best... Because he's the king, you get a glimpse into the heart of God. And 2 Samuel 9 is David at his best. So let's read it together. I'll just, I'll, eh, I'll read from the thing, make sure I got the same version. What is this? Okay, we're okay then. Read out of it anyway. So 2 Samuel 9. And David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I, can sh- that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amael, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let me me tell you a story. One time I sat in a diner across from my friend Pete. And this was um, in Johannesburg, South Africa. I'd been there for about a month. And 
I looked at Pete, who was a permanent missionary in Johannesburg, and I was a short-term summer missionary there. And I, I said, Pete, um, I don't want to love that guy. In fact, if I'm honest, I hate him. Now, let me tell you why. Well, earlier we had pulled into the parking lot, and when we pulled into the parking lot, a homeless guy got up, pointed me to a space in the empty parking lot, and then he held out his hand, and he said, it's a tip for showing me an empty spot. And, and I, want, I, I had to give him a tip. The reason I had to give him a tip is because he's guarding my car, which in South Africa and Johannesburg means if you don't tip him, he will call his gang from around the corner and they will break into your car and rob you. So that's guarding the car. And then they'll wash your car with dirty water and make it worse than it was before, and you have to pay them for that as well. Um, and that's how it worked there. South, Johannesburg is a city with 6 million people and a 33% unemployment rate. So every parking lot had that. And I was on a short stipend as a missionary, and my money was running out. And I didn't want to give him any of my money. And so I started making reasons why I didn't have to. I was so much better than them. They were the scum of the earth. Look at what they're doing. They're exploiting me. And I didn't want to love them. And I asked Pete. I said, Pete, here I was, a missionary who had gone halfway across the world to love people, and I couldn't even love the people I was encountering. And I said, Pete, how do you love people like that? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, he said, you are a lot closer to the guy out there in the parking lot than Jesus is to you. And Jesus would have to stoop a lot lower to love you than you would have to reach down to love him. And those words cut me, but they kind of encouraged me because here I am. What a jerk. But I have a savior who reached so much further to love someone like me. But aren't we all like that as Christians sometimes? We've been loved with a committed, everlasting love, and yet we fail sometimes to commit to loving other people, especially when it costs us. And as best I can tell, the only remedy for us is to continually remind ourselves of God's great love for us when we don't deserve it. And if we get that and work it down in us, then we can start to love other people the way he loves us. But it doesn't end with just, uh, I love this story because it's a great story that points us to the way God loves us. But it doesn't just end with us being loved by God. In fact, because God has loved us, the result is we must commit to loving others in that same way. And you see that in the life of David here. I'm going to give you three ways. We must love those who threaten us. We must love sacrificially. And we must love with God's love. That's what we're going to look at. I think it's in your outline. But before we begin to look at this story together... Some of you are going to notice something. I'm talking a lot about love. Did anyone see the word love in that passage? If you're astute, it's not there in English. But the word that keeps coming up over and over is actually kindness. It's in verses 1, 3, and 7. David says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And then in verse 3, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? Verse 7, David tells Mephibosheth, do not fear, I will show you kindness. Now that word kindness is actually a word in Hebrew uh, called chesed. You've got to get it from the back of the throat right there. That's a, we don't do that in English much, but chesed. Y'all want to give it, give, give it a try? I like it. Some of you guys, I really felt it. Heard the phlegm. That pollen in the spring, it helps. So yeah. Now, now kindness is a paper-thin word, especially in our culture. Kindness can mean nice. 
Kindness is paper thin, and chesed would have a phone book of meaning for a, for a Hebrew back then. When they heard that word, they remembered that God redeemed them from, from Egypt because of his covenantal love for them. And that he never gave up on them. Even when they turned from him time and time and time again, he always came back to them. Why? Because he had chesed. And you see it. Uh, they, English people, uh, English people, English speaking people try to translate it lots of different ways. Sometimes it's kindness. Sometimes if you're reading your Bible, you'll come across loving kindness, kind of a combo word. Sometimes steadfast love. That's all those are chesed. And recently, and we just, uh, Elliot told me that last time before spring break, so try to remember that, uh, he talked about God's covenant, uh, that he made with David and God had gone to David and said, my steadfast love will never depart from you. And what he was saying there is, my chesed will never depart from you. I'll never stop loving you. I'll never stop being faithful to you. And so now David wants to give that same covenantal love to Mephibosheth. And so as we work out the implications of this passage together, I want to keep a running thesis with you. You can't love like David till you've been loved like Mephibosheth. Do you hear that? You can't love like David loves in this story until you've been loved like Mephibosheth in this story. So what's the first thing we can learn? Well, we learn that we must love those who threaten us. As I said earlier, David is the king over Israel. God has promised to bless him, but in chapter 8 we see there's some Philistines still in the land. Dang Philistines. And then he has to chase them off, but now the kingdom is established, and this is our first look. This story is our first look. What is David going to be like as the king? We've been waiting. Haven't you been waiting for a while now? All semester you've been waiting for David to be the king. He's been running and hiding. Now what's he going to be like now that he's sitting on the throne? So David looks for someone from the house of Saul to bless. That makes sense, right? No, that doesn't make sense. If you, I mean, the last half of 1 Samuel, Saul was chasing David and trying to kill him. And why would David want to help someone from Saul's family? Well, you know the story. You guys heard. Uh, Saul had a son named Jonathan who was David's best friend. And even, and, and, and even though David was Saul's enemy, Jonathan helped his friend. He saved him. And they made a covenant with one another. To bless each other's families. So now fast forward a few decades. That's what we just did. And Jonathan and Saul are dead. They're gone. And no one expects David to keep that promise to Jonathan. No one expects it. In fact, David should try to kill people who threaten his throne. Now some of you may be asking, why is Mephibosheth, a, a lame in his feet guy, hiding somewhere a threat to David's throne? Well, he's Saul's grandson. And so back in, if you ever watch any of these um, period dramas where there's kings struggling for power, you know how it goes. When a new regime takes place, when a new king comes in in a new line, he has to wipe out the whole lineage of the previous king. Because that's the only way to secure his place on the throne. Because Mephibosheth was a grandson of Saul, opponents of David could rally around him as a political figure. And so... You would expect David to kill him. In fact, one commentator that I really like, he says this. When a new regime or dynasty came into power, the name of the game was Purge. The new king always needed to solidify his position, and the conventional policy was solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, and everybody practiced it. That's why Mephibosheth was terrified. That's why he was living in a place called Lodabar. If you, if you translate that, it means a place with no pasture which means a wasteland. He was living where no one wants to live because he was hiding from David. 
because can you imagine him living in that place? And then here comes David's soldiers and they say, you've been summoned to meet with the king. He probably looked at his family and went, well, it was a good run. I'm dead. And let's go. Because he's, he's lame in his feet. He can't even run away. He's helpless. And he goes to the king. So what does David do to this potential threat to his throne? He blesses him. He not only blesses him, he blesses him in a way that gives him power. He empowers him. Look at what he did. He gave him back his land. He gave him servants. He essentially adopts him, calls him a son. And the rest of Mephibosheth's days, he would eat at the king's table. Like one of the king's sons. That's so foreign to us. Because we are nothing if we are not a competitive group of people here in America. We love competition. We love our sports, but we'll turn anything into a competition. We compete at school. We compete at work. Uh, When you become my age, you start competing with your kids. Maybe some of you had the misfortune of your parents living their dreams vicariously through you in sports. But... But we love competition, and you see it nowhere more than in, like, the, 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 the reality competition TV shows, like Survivor. And something very unique happens on particularly Survivor that I think gets at our culture sometimes. Uh, you're on a team, but whose team are you really on in Survivor? You're on your team in Survivor. Now, you, you, you are part of a tribe with a funny name, but, and, and you will ally yourself with them as much as it benefits you But really, at the end of the day, you're after your own good. And I think sometimes we can be that way. We can be competitive with those. And and that way we see everyone around us as as someone that can maybe help me, but also a potential threat. Someone I'm in competition with. How do we apply that? Maybe, well, I'm going to remind you of something. You can't love like David until you've been loved like Mephibosheth. And David had been loved that way. Remember 2 Samuel 7? God said, my steadfast love will never leave you. Your kingdom, your line will last forever. When you hear that from God, then you can take your enemy and say, come on back. Take your dad's house. Take your dad's servants. Take your land, your money. You can have all that stuff. I'm not worried about you because God's taking care of me. You can love people that threaten you. You can love people that are your competition When you know that God's going to take care of you. That's good to hear as college students. Because just in case you didn't realize this. Everything about the American academic system has has forced you and made you to be a competitive person against everyone else around you. You're numbered in your class. You want to be the best. So you always want to try to get the edge on other people. So let me ask. Who are you in competition with? And you don't even think about it. Who are you in competition with? Is it a student that has maybe just a little bit more opportunity for the best internship? Or maybe someone that's just a little ahead of you in life and you wish you had what they had? Let me give you a suggestion. Maybe you could start by looking at who are the, who are the people that are good at, at the same things that you're good at. Who's good at the same stuff as you? Often we find ourselves silently and subconsciously competing with those people. Will you love them? Will you love them in a way that empowers them? When the person that you wish you had what they had does something well, will you praise them? Will you honor them? Will you lift them up? Will you pray for your friend when they 
say, this is something that happened to me in seminary. Uh, a guy came to me and said, man, just pray for me. I really want this job in Birmingham. Well, guess who else had just applied for the job in Birmingham? So I didn't really want to pray for him to get that job because I wanted that job. But will you pray for your friends when they're in competition with you? Because you trust that God is looking out for you. He cares for you and he promises never to leave you. Well, our story continues to tell us a little bit more about how we can love people, not just those who threaten us, but we must love with a sacrificial love. So earlier in the story, Jonathan, if you remember, comes to David and he says, this is before this passage, he says, please don't do what they always do when kingdoms change hands. Don't kill my family, please. Please don't wipe out my family. So now if you think about it, David could have done a lot of stuff and kept that promise. He didn't have to go like all in. He could have just left Mephibosheth out there in Lodabar. That would have been good enough. To ignore Mephibosheth would have been mercy. To not kill him would have been mercy. But what does he do? He goes above and beyond and sacrifices a great deal to make sure Mephibosheth is treated like a family member for the rest of his life. Look at the text in verse 7. Look at all the stuff he gives him. He says... Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And then he goes on to give him servants, 35 servants. So you think about this. David, see, he would have acquired the the estate of Saul when he became king, which would have been a, a considerable estate. And instead of keeping it for himself, he gives it back to Mephibosheth. And then he gives him 35 servants. Think about the care involved in that little expression. Um, Mephibosheth was lame in his feet. He couldn't take care of a humongous estate. So he gets the servants and tells them, bring the the food in. Bring the fruit in of the land so that Mephibosheth will have food. Think about how much thought he put into that. Just as an example, if, if one of you feel compelled after this to buy me a Hummer, I will be very appreciative... But I will trade it in and get a hybrid because I cannot afford the gas on a Hummer. So what David essentially does is say, here, take the Hummer and here's gas for life. Take the estate and here's servants to take care of it for the rest of your life. He, he looks after Mephibosheth. He sacrifices a great deal so that, so that he can have a relationship with Mephibosheth. Think about that. He gives up a lot of his stuff for a relationship. Now, that's odd because most of our relationships in this world are just the opposite of that. We, we will sacrifice the relationship for our stuff. I'll give you an example. My wife and I go to the Kroger on Vineville, and that's where we buy our groceries because it's pretty close to our house. And if the produce there gets a little shaky, a little nasty, kind of rotten, what we'll do is probably go to the produce manager and we'll beg him to really reconsider the produce selection and I'll write him a poem to inspire him and I'll and I'll I'll go to the flower section I'll get flowers and bring it to him and say please please have better produce we love Kroger we're committed no I won't do any of that stuff we'll go to Publix we'll just go to a different place the reason why is because that relationship exists to meet my needs I'm a consumer and if it isn't meeting my needs I go somewhere else Now, my marriage is exactly the opposite of that. If my wife is denying me something that I need, I'm not going to go to Lindsay and say, Honey, 
you've been a little cold lately and the Denver hasn't been very good and I can get a better meal and a little more TLC down the road with what's her name. So I'm going to hang out there this evening. I'm not going to do it. That's a terrible idea. Why? Because, because in covenantal relationships like family, like marriage, we're not consumers. We're committers. And we sacrifice our needs for the relationship. I will beg Lindsay. I will plead with her. I'll write her a poem. I'll go get her flowers. I'll do whatever I have to do to get that relationship right. And I'll sacrifice my stuff to keep the relationship. Which do you tend to be? Are you sometimes coming into relationships as a consumer? How can I use these people? What can they do for me? And if, I, and if this friend isn't giving me what I want, then I'll just find another friend. Or are we committers? Because if you're a believer, you're a brother and sister in Christ. We're a family. We're a covenant family. We're called to love one another in a sacrificial way, which means you have to give up some things to keep the relationship right. What will you give up? Your time? Your money, your agenda, sometimes your agenda, you come into relationships wanting something. And if you don't get what you want, you just move on. In, in churches, you see people that won't speak to each other because they're mad about something and they disagree. And rather than work it out, they just ignore each other. In college ministry, I'm on to you. In college ministry, you can just ride people out. You're only here for four years. That person's a little bit annoying. We'll just keep them on the periphery of our circle. We'll keep them on the perimeter of our group. And we'll ride them out. Then I don't have to worry about them anymore. Are you willing to lose some of your comfort, some of your time, some of your efficiency to have the relationships with the people that are here? My last point is this. It's what I've been getting at all along. Is how are you going to love like that? What I, I just laid a gauntlet for y'all and y'all are kind of all okay. Love people that threaten you and love them like that? That's almost impossible. How do you do it? How did David do it? Well, we know how David did it. You can't love like that unless God's love is overflowing out of you. You can't love like that until you realize you have been loved that way. David could love his enemy because he had once been the enemy of the king, hadn't he? He had been one on the other side, running for his life and hiding. And he was shown love, first by Jonathan and then by God himself when God made a covenant with him. David could love Mephibosheth because he realized that he was a Mephibosheth too. He was once helpless. He was once the one that had no solution and no way to get into the good graces of the king. So he turns around and loves Mephibosheth. This passage leaves us with wonderful pictures of what covenantal love does to you. So first, David shows us what someone who has been loved with a covenant love can do. When you've been loved that way, you become secure. And you don't have to worry about scrounging to get everything for yourself. You can relax and give away love and give away time to other people because God's taken care of you. He's made a promise to you. And in Mephibosheth, we see a different picture. We see how to accept the love that we don't deserve from God. I love the way the story ends. Now, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. 
Isn't that just a funny way to end a story? It's just like they're reminding you. He didn't do anything to earn it. And he's just, I can imagine his, his lame feet propped up on the table. What's for dinner? At the king's table. And he's just enjoying it. He didn't earn it. He just enjoyed it. The application for that is simple. Remember who you were. Remember, if you're a believer, you were once a Mephibosheth. You were once an enemy of the king. Object of wrath is what Paul would say. And you deserved death. And that's what Mephibosheth deserved. But instead, he got grace. And that's what happened to all of us. The king, when we deserved death, summoned us. And if we stood before him, we thought we deserved to die. And instead, he said, come sit at my table. Come be like one of my sons. Be like one of my daughters. Be my family. First John is kind of a commentary on this story, it feels like. It, it tells us... Uh, we need to love one another. We need to love one another. Love, love, love. If you read the whole thing, it says love one another so many times. If you don't love, the truth is not in you. And, and, then it, and then it finally gets to how you can do that. It says, behold the manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's how you can love that way as you know you've been loved. So I hope that you can love those around you. I pray that all of you will engage in risky love. I, I pray that you would risk something in the way you lift up someone else, in the way you honor other people, even those who you feel like you're in competition with. But when you fail to love them, I pray that you would remember this, that God loves you not because of anything you did. He loves you because of what Jesus did. Who did, who did David? David wanted to bless someone in the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Not for Mephibosheth's sake, for someone else had done something for Mephibosheth. And that's the way it is with us. Christ, on our behalf, has done everything that we need for God to say, you're my child. I love you. Even when we were enemies, we were loved sacrificially. And you've got to remember that. Because I don't know, maybe for some of you it's right now. Maybe for some of you, you're thinking, I, don't even, I can't even start to think about loving that way. Because I don't, I'm in a place where I don't even know if God loves me. I don't even know if he loves me. I feel like an enemy of God. I feel like he's set against me. Well, I pray, don't go into a hiding place without a pasture. Don't go run and hide from God. Instead, remember that you're not an enemy of the king. In fact, you're the son of Jesus. You're in the family of Jesus. And then go to God and take your lame feet, prop them up at the table, and just enjoy him. Enjoy his presence and enjoy being a child of his. And then love other people with the same love. Let's pray. Lord, I need to hear that. I need to hear that your love is great even when I'm a hypocrite, even when I can't commit to loving people that way. Lord, I thank you for the love that fills me up, that fills us up, and reminds us that we are secure and we are safe and you'll never leave us and forsake us and so that we can risk uh, loving others the way you love us. Thank you for showing us what ultimate sacrificial love is like and sending your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would engage 
in loving others the way that He loved us, that we would stoop down and love those who frustrate us and who exhaust us and, and love them because we have an overflow of your love inside our own hearts. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.